This episode is brought to you by Santa Clara University's Jesuit School of Theology, located in Berkeley, California. Learn to serve at the intersection of scholarship and culture. Find out more at scu.edu slash JST. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And no Zach Davis this week. Nope. It is wedding week. It is wedding week for him. So, like I said last week, we were going to miss him, but we're also really excited that he's getting married this weekend. Yes, we are. Um, but that means I'm in charge of saying what's on tap. Yes, and this you week, are. I am so excited about it. It is a boozy autumnal tea. Yeah, you said the, <laughs> that autumnal word way better than I do. Yeah, so we've got... Um, Trader Joe's Harvest Blend Herbal Tea, courtesy of our colleague and O'Hare fellow, Kevin Jackson, um, with a, a splash of Jim Bean. So. I think a little more than a splash because I poured today and I don't know what happened. No, but This is like the platonic drink for me. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Cheers. All right. And who are we talking to today, Olga? So this week, we're actually talking with Gabriella Jekyll, who is a freshman at Loyola Marymount in California. And she recently wrote an essay for America's Faith in Focus section titled How I Am Learning to Live with Loneliness at a Jesuit College. And it's an extremely moving piece. Yeah. So we recorded this last week. So you'll hear Zach's voice there. Um, But so when I'm not recording Jesuitical, I edit America's Faith and Focus section. Um, And when this piece came in, I was just floored. Um, She writes with like real vulnerability um, and maturity about the experience of loneliness in college, which is something I know I experienced. And it's something I continue to experience even out of college. Right, right. She just has a complete self-awareness that most adults I know don't even have. So we're just really excited to be bringing you guys this interview. Yeah. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from Rome, where Pope Francis just opened up the Synod of Bishops on the Amazon this past Sunday with a mass at St. Peter's Basilica. So we've we've mentioned this synod in the past couple episodes. Um, Pope Francis called for a gathering of bishops to discuss the challenges that are facing the church and the people in the Amazon region. Right. So bishops and other experts are going to be meeting in Rome from October. 6th to the 27th, and they're going to be discussing topics like climate change, deforestation, to the possibility of married priests, and the role of women in the church. Yeah, and so it just opened on Sunday, so there's not any big breaking news Mm -hmm. on any of those issues to report at this point. But we did learn on Monday some of the kind of like optics and formatting changes that are happening at the Synod, which are actually really interesting. Um, So the first change, uh, lay experts and auditors who used to kind of get stuck in the back Mm -hmm. corner of the Synod Hall are now kind of interspersed in the back section of the of the hall among bishops. Um, So that's new. Right. And on the first day of meetings, the secretary general announced that the synod fathers would be allowed to wear simple clerics as opposed to the more formal clerics that they have worn in past synods. Yeah. And so like these might seem like small changes, like what does it matter if he's wearing a a cassock or clerics? Right. But I think between that and then people, lay people being interspersed among the bishops, it's kind of breaking down barriers to dialogue, which is something that Pope Francis has really emphasized for the synod, like wanting people to like talk frankly with each other. Right. Right. And it's good to 
see that these changes are taking place in this way. And another big one is that this synod is a lot greener than previous years. So Pope Francis describes this gathering as the first fruits of Laudato Si, which is his encyclical on the environment. So synod organizers have actually made a lot of efforts to keep it as environmentally friendly as possible. Right. So some of those efforts are having online registration, so they're not wasting paper. Um, Their bags and pens and cups are biodegradable. And most significantly, um, they, you know, they had to fly over 200 people from South America to Rome for this meeting. And that's a lot of carbon emissions. So to make up for that and to make the meeting carbon neutral, they are buying um, buying 50 hectares of new growth forests in the Amazon. Right. Which is really, really great. And America's Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell, and our special correspondent, Luke Hansen, are going to keep providing daily updates on the Synod, which you can find at americamag.org slash Amazon Synod 2019. And you can tune in next week because we're also going to be interviewing Luke to get a firsthand account of the proceedings. Yep, that'll be great. What's our next story, Olga? So this past Saturday, Pope Francis created 13 new cardinals from 11 different countries, including places like Guatemala, Spain, Italy, Cuba, England, and Canada. Yeah, and so we've talked about this before, how um, the people that Pope Francis is choosing to be cardinals is really like a signal of the direction he wants to see the church moving in. He's talked about a church for the poor and a church that exists at the peripheries. And so he's choosing a lot of people from the global south. And that's significant because these are the people that are going to elect the next pope. Right, right. So of these 13 cardinals, 10 now have the right to vote in this conclave, actually, that you mentioned that will select the pope's successor. Um, And to kind of give you an example of the type of men that Pope Francis has chosen, Michael Cherney is one of them, and he's known for his commitment to the environment for a lot of the work that he has done for migrants and refugees. And during his ordination this past weekend, he wore a wooden pectoral cross that was made from one of the boats that migrants use to cross the Mediterranean to Lampedusa. Yeah, no, he was I I think everyone was surprised by by this pick. He was he was not a bishop, he's a mm-hmm. Jesuit. He was a Jesuit working um with popular movements in Brazil when he was got the call that he was going to be made a cardinal, which right. surprised him as much as everyone else. Um but like you said it, it is it's a perfect ex- example of the kind of kind of pastor that Pope Francis wants to lift up in the church. What's our next story, Ashley? So we'll move to the United States now. Um, This past week, the Supreme Court opened its new session, um, and there are several issues of concern for Catholics on the agenda for the court's new term, um, including abortion, immigration, and LGBT rights. Yes, and the abortion case will be especially closely watched because it involves a law in Louisiana that forces abortion providers to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. And challengers of the law say that it would virtually shut down all of the abortion clinics in the state. Right. And so this is significant because it's the first big case to go in front of the Supreme Court that has been shaped by um, President Trump's picks. And with his two picks, he has he's shifted the court to the right. Um And so now we're going to see how that affects abortion law. Um, The law in Louisiana is identical to a law um, that was struck down in 2016. Um, So this case will test whether this shift on the court is going to change how it views abortion. Right. And if the court does strike down the law, it it would be it's being considered a serious blow to the strategy of the pro-life movement, which has sought to weaken and ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade by gaining a more conservative majority on the court. And if the court upholds the law, it will likely give more fuel to a lot of the Democratic candidates who are proposing major reforms to the court, like term limits and expanding the number of justices. So they'll be discussing this um, over the fall and probably Maybe we won't even announce it until June, but we will keep you updated on where that goes. 
What's our next story, Olga? So the Diocese of Brooklyn is accusing New York City's First Lady, Sherlane McRae, of anti-Catholic bias after some say that she snubbed the great saint Mother Frances Cabrini in the city's public arts initiative. So some background. Uh, McRae launched the She Built NYC project back in 2018 in order to bring greater gender balance to the city's public monuments. So right now there are 150 statues of historical figures in New York and only five of them are women. Right. So New Yorkers were asked to nominate women for the initiative. And out of the 1,200 responses that came in, the number one choice by a wide margin was Mother Cabrini, who is the first American saint, the patron saint of immigrants, and the foundress of dozens of orphanages and schools. Right. So they they asked for the public to give their input, but then they had a commission that was going to review the votes um, and make their own decision. And in the end, uh, Mother Cabrini did not make the cut. So they chose seven other winners. Mm-hmm. Um but New York's choice was not one of them. Right. And in an editorial in the tablet, which is Brooklyn's Catholic newspaper, they claimed that the exclusion of two of the most iconic Catholic women in the history of New York City, St. Francis Xavier and Dorothy Day, seems to be the product of an implicit anti-Catholic bias. Right. And I remember when this was first announced that Mother Cabrini was kind of being snubbed, kind of being like pretty annoyed and mm-hmm. thinking like, well, like, why did you ask for the public's input if you're not going to listen to it um and like i don't know i kind of saw it as like in an effort for them to like represent certain populations they were actually not doing justice to the diversity of new york because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of catholics in new york um but the spokespeople's responses for the commission you know their their answer was like look mother cabrini has a shrine she has a park she has a street like and I, I take that. Like, yeah, like you can't walk three blocks in Brooklyn without seeing a Catholic <laughs> church and right. a statue of a saint. So like if if the question is like giving representation to people who don't see themselves in mm-hmm. the city's public monuments, like I kind of get it. Right, right. And and they were also mentioning just to kind of show us listeners both sides. They they want they claim that they wanted to, as Ashley mentioned, give representation to a lot of communities that they say don't get it, like women of color, people in the in the LGBT community, which is wonderful. It's always great to hear that. But I kind of feel the same way you did, Ashley, where it's like if you're going to ask people to share their opinion and to tell you what they want, then I think that you should honor that, <laughs> you know, like if 1200 pe- if out of 1200 responses, the majority wanted this, then yeah. I think it would have been OK for you to go and represent the New York City Catholic community. Yeah. Um, so the bishop of Brooklyn, Nicholas DiMarzio, he's going to try to build his own statue to Mother Cabrini. Um, this past Sunday, he led a procession starting at a church in Brooklyn where she first ministered and mm-hmm. going to another church um, as the kickoff to a fundraiser to build their own statue to the saint. So she might get her representation in the end after all. Yes, she will. What's our last story, Ashley? So last month, Molly Burhans received the United Nations Young Champions of the Earth Prize for North America for her work with Goodlands, the nonprofit organization she founded to help Catholic communities around the world use their properties for good. Right. So familiar name, right? (laughs) Very familiar name because we actually talked to Molly Burhans back in 2017 in episode 28. I know, back when we were baby Jesuitical. <laughs> we were baby Jesuitical, baby podcasters. So she actually won this award that the UN gives to people between the ages of 18 to 30 who are committed to creating a positive environmental impact. And this is pretty big because it is the first time that a faith-based organization has received this prize. Yeah, and the work she's doing is so cool. Basically, like, 
she was discerning a vocation to become a sister mm-hmm. and like was staying at this convent and just she had a background in data science and she was like looking at all the land that these sisters owned and was like we don't have like digital maps for this. And the Catholic Church is the largest landholder in the mm-hmm. world. And basically it's all on paper, but it's not in a format that can really be useful for like for land management and for combating climate change and all these things that the church is committing to doing. So she just decided, well, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> and she's been working closely with the Vatican um, and other groups to like make this a reality. And it's so cool. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. One thing that I appreciate just thinking back to our interview with her is that she's such a perfect example of showing listeners the great work that people, that Catholics, lay people are doing for the church because mm-hmm. she's really committed to helping the church be better. And when she would, when she got this award, she was actually like, look, we aren't in this for the awards. We're in this because we love our neighbors. So she is really taking the call in Laudato Si to heart. Yeah. So keep your eye on Molly Burhans. She's amazing. Um, and if you want to learn more about her work, go back to episode 28 of Jesuitical when we talk to her. And now, stick around. After a quick break, we will be talking with Gabriella Jekyll about the experience of being lonely at college. via Skype is Gabriela Jaco, a first-year student at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking time out of your school schedule. So you recently wrote an essay for America called How I Am Learning to Live with Loneliness at a Jesuit College, and it was really, really moving. So can you describe for our listeners what that experience of loneliness feels like? Yeah, so I wrote that essay after my first week here. I come from a really close family, and it was just you know, a huge transition. I'd uprooted my life and come to a new state um, and left all my friends. And it was this kind of loneliness that I hadn't really felt before. Like, I think I, I said in the essay, it was almost more existential. Like, what if I never really feel not lonely again? And I just, I thought I can't be the only person feeling this. So I decided to, you know, to put it on paper. Yeah. Can you talk about that first week, what were there moments when it when it really struck you, um, or was it just this kind of constant feeling? I mean, it was a little bit of both. It was like so orientation; they keep you so busy, you don't even really have time to like sit down and think. And so then, once classes started, I realized I had so much time to just think, just like be with my thoughts. And so it would be kind of there was just like this overarching like, oh, this is what college is going to feel like. And then there would be little moments where I would just kind of be reminded of the fact that I'm not home. You know, like I'd see something on Instagram of my friends back home in Washington, and I would just be reminded that's not an experience I'm going to get to have. And so there was definitely a combination of, like I said, existential loneliness and just like momentary, man, I wish I could be there right now, or I wish I could find some sort of quick fix for this time right now. Yeah, I found that your essay especially hit home for me because I was one of the first to go to college in my family and my parents were all immigrants. So my parents didn't have the language to help me prep for college. So when I was, you know, filling out FAFSA forms or trying to figure out figure out my schedule, like my parents just didn't have the rhetoric that was necessary to get me ready. So for that first semester at Fordham, I also went to a Jesuit school, was really, really difficult for me because not only did I have 
I didn't have my parents to help me prep for that. But I was also in a space where most of my classes, I was the only person of color. And I didn't move away from home. I still got to go home back to my parents after school. But it was so difficult for me to just kind of be able to go like there was no one that I felt in my family that I could relate this experience to. Well, that goes with what you're saying with like loneliness being like this sort of existential feeling, right? Like even though Olga is going home to her her parents, you know, after school every day, there's still like this really overwhelming feeling just sort of over you all, like all the time. Right, right. Right. And I think that's something that, you know, I got a lot of comments of people saying you should try going to clubs or talking to your roommate. And I was doing all those things, you know, I think you can be surrounded by people. But if you're in this completely new environment, you can still feel entirely lonely. Um, and I don't know that that's something that's ever really going to go away. And I don't know that it needs to. Like, I think part of me is always going to be really homesick and always really going to miss my family. And I, I wouldn't trade the relationship I have with the people back home for feeling okay all the time. Your experience resonated with me um, very strongly. And I think there I certainly had a degree of shame around being lonely because it's like, you know, if I'm lonely, it's because I'm not good at making friends and <laughs> that's not something I'm very proud of. Um, how did you get over that shame and what made you so willing to write about this for a wide audience? Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't even really think after it came out, a lot of people were like, oh, my gosh, this was so brave. And I really did not think of it as being um like brave at all until I was like, oh, maybe this would have been really embarrassing for some people. <laughs> but um, I just kind of wrote it for myself. I journal a lot. I love to write. And then as I was writing it, I was like, you know, I bet somebody could get something from this. So I, I'm not sure if they'll publish this, whatever, we'll see. And then, and then it was kind of a whirlwind from there. Like <laughs> I got the email and then it got published and then people read it. And then like James Martin posted it on Facebook, which was crazy. <laughs> and like from there, it just was all very overwhelming. But, um, I think the main thing was my dad would always tell me, my dad's a writer too. And he would always say like, if you don't see something written, that's God telling you it should, it should be. Um, if you're looking for something and you can't find it, that's your vocation. That's your calling. And so I sat down like after my first three days of college and I Googled like college lonely. And the only things that came up were like 10 ways to avoid college loneliness. And it was like, go out, talk to people, you know? And, and after all that, I was kind of just still in this place where I didn't, I didn't feel like that was constructive and I didn't really need quick fixes. I needed to hear that I wasn't alone. You mentioned in the piece tidbits of advice people were giving you like, oh, wait till just give it a little time, wait till Halloween, this and okay. that. Like, I feel like most people's first impulse when they're confronted with this honesty, you have to sort it's not easy to just sort of sit with that and honor that. There's always this impulse to like offer you a solution or or, or right. one of those. Yeah. They're, they're Googling college loneliness and rattling <laughs> off the things that you thought were annoying and stupid. What What was it like hearing from people in your life about this piece? Yeah. So I heard from just like a plethora of different people. I heard from some kids in my class here who just DM'd me on Instagram and said, we had no idea that you were going through this. Like I'm feeling the same way. And then I heard from people back home who were feeling the same way. And then from some people that I've never met that are freshmen all the way across the country that were feeling the same way, who said either my, my dad sent this to me or my counselor showed this to me or, um, and so those were like the responses that really resonated with me because they weren't necessarily offering like a fix which in this time I kind of don't think I need ultimately I think time is what I need I think that's all that's really going to make this easier and then I got so many responses from people here at LMU and it reminded me why I came to a Jesuit institution like this idea of cura personalis I came to a school like this so that 
they they care about more than just my grades, right? Like they care about my soul and nurturing me as a person. And so um, some of them were more on the administrative side and people, the word that was used a lot was concerned. People were like, we're, you know, we're concerned about you. That's kind of alarming um, to hear. <laughs> right, right. Which, and I, I completely appreciate it. But at the same time, I think it promoted this narrative that loneliness is something to be concerned about and something to be ashamed of. And I don't at all think it is. But I really, I did genuinely appreciate people reaching out. Like it, it was so amazing. And I got so many awesome resources. And at the same time, I, I responded to a lot of those by saying, I'm the one who wrote it, but I'm not the only one who's feeling it. Like this should be a widespread thing. And I am so happy to be at this school. I think, I think at a Jesuit college, they do such an amazing job of, you know, helping us adjust, but I would feel this absolutely anywhere. Uh, I wonder if you could just share the the anecdote that you mentioned in your piece about going to daily mass and encountering some, some nuns there. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a 7.30 mass here. And my first couple weeks here, well, still, I just wake up super early. The sun shines right in our room. And I'm not used to that being from Seattle. So it's like, <laughs> I definitely wake up pretty early. Um, and there's a 7.30 mass right next to my dorm. And it's just the small little chapel. And I decided to go on that first day because I needed to get out of my room. I had just been driving myself crazy. I didn't have a class till noon. So I decided to go and I sat in the back and just cried the entire time. It was like my first mm. week there. It reminded me of, it was just like mortifying. I could not have imagined like, you know, and, um, it's, it's early. It's kind of away from the other dorm. So the only people there were religious sisters and I was just, I could not believe like I was in this position. Like crying in front of a bunch of nuns. Is that? Yeah, the, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Got yeah. it. Precisely. And everybody was, of course, they were being lovely and nice, but they're also like, is she okay? You know, like there were a whole <laughs> plethora of things when like a 19 year old woman is crying in a church. So I, um, I just kind of waited it out and I honestly wish I could remember more what my, the homily or what the gospel was that day. But for the most part, I was just in a space where it was okay to be not okay. And there's, I feel like when you're meeting new people and you're putting on these brave faces, there are so few spaces where you feel like it's okay to be uncomfortable. And it was just okay to be uncomfortable here. It was okay to not be the happiest I've ever been. And then afterward, um, you know, a sister came up to me and she just said, are you okay? And I, that was kind of one of the first times I was like, you know, I'm not, and that's very much okay. Like, it's okay that I'm not okay right now. Um, and I just said, I'm really homesick because that was the only way I could really describe the overarching feeling of like what I was going through. Yeah. And she just said, that's good. Like homesick is really good. She said it means you have a good heart, right? Yeah. She said homesick means you have a good heart. I love that. Yeah. So I've seen her every Monday since and I get to reconnect with her and it's a lovely mass. It's quiet and it's small, but that's, you know, what I, what I love about it. It's humble and simple and it's a good space to be. So I, like I, I love those morning masses. That's where I used to run in the sister Jean at Loyola. She was always at every oh, morning mass too. It's a good place to find nuns is the <laughs> yeah. morning mass on your college campus. <laughs> You you also talked to your your grandmother um, and and told her that you were feeling homesick um, and I, I she had a kind of similar response that that you know this is what you need to do and this is how you grow so what it, what does that growing look like what 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 is this experience helping you to become I think um, ultimately so my my mom's Mexican my grandmother's Mexican and in that culture leaving home isn't necessarily the norm. Um, my mom went to college, but she lived at home. And then when she moved out of state, you know, her mom moved out of state with her a couple years later. 
So even though I'm only a couple hours away, like leaving home is a big deal in our culture. Um, we just, we're always around each other. And so it's so hard when you have this, you feel this obligation that's holding you back from growing and holding you back from propelling not just yourself, but your culture in the world. And my grandmother was the one who I was most nervous to talk to because I love her so much, but I felt like every time I called, I just felt this tremendous sense of guilt every time I talked to her because I knew more than anything, she just wanted me to be with her. And so hearing her tell me, like, this is where you need to be. Like, you need to be here. You don't need to be with me right now. was really eye-opening for me because I realized I'm not going to propel my culture. I'm not going to propel my family. I'm not going to propel myself if I just stay at home. Like, it might be what's comfortable, but comfort isn't what's going to ultimately help my community. And so I'm growing in a lot of ways. I'm growing in, in learning to be alone, which is something I'm sure I will have to do a lot more in my life. I'm growing in friendships. I just want to make it clear I have made friends here. No one needs to worry about me. I'm good. Um, I've met some amazing people. And like, I'm again, like I'm elevating my family, right? I'm going one step further than my mom went. And I'm sure my kids will go like one step further than I'm going. And it's just this, this like payback for what my great grandparents and my grandparents and my mom, for what my entire lineage has done. So I think it's growing not just in myself, but growing in this legacy, like my family is left here. I think we are so privileged to be able to talk to you in general, but especially right now in the middle of what you're going through, hearing you, I mean, like, it's really an honor to like share this with yeah. you. So thank you so much. I really much. wish I could have read this when I was a freshman in college. Seriously, I, I probably would have left home if I had a friend like you when I was <laughs> 17 years old. All right, we have one more question for you. I think you know it's coming. So if you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Yeah, okay. I would canonize the priest from my high school who recently retired, Father Paul Fitterer. Um, he has like the loveliest heart, the warmest heart. You can ask him anything. And he's really who introduced me to Jesuit teachings and ignited that kind of sense of justice in me. So Paul Fitterer, you know, I, I don't think he's on Twitter, but if you can find a way to, you know, what he's ever thinking, it's, he's worth, uh, he's worth following, but yeah. So that's all right. So St. Paul Fitterer, SJ. <laughs> yeah. Has a nice one too. Yeah. It sounds good. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again so much. The article is on America's website, right? Yes, it is. In the, read the title for us one more time. I will do that when I find it. <laughs> it is how I'm learning to live with loneliness at a Jesuit college. Awesome. Well, I'm sure that's not the first piece of yours we'll see. And, so. and you have you have a website, right? You you write I do have elsewhere. A yes, GabriellaJekyll.com. So All please right. check it out. Yeah, people check it out. <laughs> awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks again, Gabriella. Thank you guys so much. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Santa Clara University's Jesuit School of Theology, located in Berkeley, California. Learn to serve at the intersection of scholarship and culture. Find out more at scu.edu slash jst. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping, and this is a fun one. So when I was talking with Father Sundrup about my uh, consolations and desolations this week, he mentioned that uh, his students at Xavier University, particularly the ones who go to the 10 p.m. mass, wanted to give a big congratulations and good luck to Zach Davis on his wedding day. So, Zach, 
I know it's the day before your wedding and you're probably not listening to <laughs> Jesuitical right now, but if you are, sending you all the love. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a desolation this week, which I think is my first desolation of our new yeah. season, which is exciting, I guess. Um <laughs> So one of the things that I've been struggling with, people keep asking me if I'm getting nervous about turning 30, and I'm like, not really. I'm really excited for the next decade of my life. But one of the things that I'm noticing is that a lot of the friendships that I have have changed, and they're no longer the friendships I had when we were 19 or early to mid-20s. And that's been something that's really difficult for me to deal with because I keep listening to that evil voice that's telling me, oh, you're friends just don't love you or like they don't value time with you as the same way that they value time with other people. And I know that that's the evil voice telling me all of these negative things, but I can't pull myself out of there. And I've been really, really petty and negative about my friendships this week. And I just it's been a complete desolation because I haven't been able to pull myself out of that space. Yeah, no, I know how that goes. It's like the 20s are a weird age. It's Every, so like, weird. It's are changing. Uh and that's kind of what my desolation slash consolation, it's kind of a, a, a twofer. <laughs> Since Zach's not here, I'm getting two of them. <laughs> um, so I, as I've mentioned before, I, I recently moved into a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I did that, I was over the summer, I was starting to feel like restless. Like, like a lot of my friends had these big life changes happening, whether they're getting engaged or moving or changing jobs. And I just like felt like I needed to do my own adulting. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get my own place. I don't want a roommate anymore. Um, And I like had this idea that like once I had my own space, like everything would fall into place Mm -hmm. and I'd feel like like more mature and I'd floss my teeth every day and I'd exercise. (laughs) Um, And now I'm a weekend and like I'm glad I made the move, but I'm realizing that like I had put all these expectations on on this move and I'm in a new place and I'm still the same old Ashley. (laughs) So that that was kind of like there was some desolation in that and that like kind of like what we talked about with Jamie last week. Like when you like are just like climbing and reaching and Mm -hmm. like once you get the thing you you want and it doesn't satisfy you, you're just kind of like left feeling even emptier. Mm -hmm. Um, But like a consolation did come in because like it brought some clarity. I was like, okay. Apparently, what I needed was not this move. Mm-hmm. I, what I need to feel fulfilled, probably, is turning to my relationship with God, which was actually harder to do <laughs> with the stress of moving. <laughs> right. So, But now that I'm settled, um, I really do feel this pull to kind of like double down on that part of my life um, and give that as much attention as I gave my physical surroundings. So I'm very excited for this next yeah. phase for you. Yeah. So roll us out of here. Is that what Zach normally says? I think take us out of here. Okay, take us out of here. Yeah, that rollout <laughs> felt weird as I said it. <laughs> this week, Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Tucker Redding and Ryan DeCorpo. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura, and we'll see you next week.